You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Well, this particular episode of Bede comes as the church has endured going over a year now of COVID-19 resulting from a global pandemic. And Michael, you know, and I know, and our listeners know, for long periods of time, local churches had to shut their doors and result to shepherding their people virtually. Churches, great and small, were forced to embrace technology like never before. Sunday morning corporate worship had to be streamed through Facebook or YouTube, sermons and Bible studies recorded and posted to websites and social media platforms, church apps rolled out, phone calls, texting, and Zoom used in place of in-person meetings. Concerning to at least some people is the seemingly uncritical embrace of technology by the church, as if theology is not at stake, but we know it is. It would be naive to think that the church's use of technology will not have long-term effects on what the church believes. Indeed, theology will be altered as a result of the faith being translated through various technologies with such ubiquity. Now, to what extent theology is transformed will be seen over time. The story of American Christianity's embrace of radio, see, here's some history that I think is very relevant to our time. But American Christianity's early embrace of radio in the 20th century is greatly relevant for our day, as it highlights a particular period in American religious history when the church uncritically embraced technology. It is, therefore, a cautionary tale with much to teach the contemporary church. And it is to this tale that we'll turn in our program today. So, Michael, it's good to be with you, joining you, of course, with all the help of this technology. So there's no small irony in us taking up evangelicals, technology, as we do this on um, a podcasting platform with you uh, thousands of miles away, well, hundreds of miles away from me. Uh, no small irony there, uh, but I wanted to throw a question out to you as we begin. Uh, if I were to ask you if technology, and maybe this is a silly question, but it might uh, set the, the right tone for us. If I was to ask you if technology is a friend or an enemy of the church, what would you say? Does history teach us anything? Well, it is ironic. Uh, as you say, we're <laughs> we're talking about the medium that by which we're able to put this podcast together. And um, I think I think your question it, uh, points to the reality that we have to consider that um, the naivety of you know various thinkers in our own day that technology is neutral and uh, one can embrace a vehicle of technology and it not shape you or reshape you. Um, it was a Canadian thinker, Marshall McLuhan, back in the 60s, who said the medium is the message, uh, by which yes. he meant, and uh, he actually wasn't promoting that idea. A lot of people actually misunderstand McLuhan. They think he was kind of a um, 
what he was touted to be at the time, kind of a pop, a pop thinker. He, he became, um, you know, so, kind of like the Jordan Peterson in the sense of the 1960s. And he actually was quite critical. He was very critical. He was a, uh, a traditional Roman Catholic, and he was very, very critical of the various forms of uh, popular media that were being embraced by, by, by Canadian and American culture. And he felt it was reshaping that culture. And I think that's the critical thing that your question points to. Um, the church, uh, and this is especially true of evangelicals, have always been able, uh, able to adapt themselves to various technologies. And um, that there has been a good side to that, but there's also obviously been a, a, maybe a negative side. And if you think about the history of the church, the, the switch from the, uh, the scroll, the papyrus roll, to the codex, um, nobody obviously remembers that or even thinks about that except for certain biblical scholars. But that is a that's a very, very significant shift. Um, it enabled uh, biblical exegesis. It enabled evangelistic uh, witnessing and preaching with ease than it had happened before, etc. Um, <clears throat> in more recent days, the printing press is probably the most extraordinary um, advance in technology. And would you use word revolution for that? Really a revolution in communication, would you agree? Oh, it's enormously, uh, it's enormously revolutionary. Mm -hmm. uh, the very fact of the success of the Reformation hangs on, from a human standpoint, hangs on the, the printing press. Um, John Wycliffe had said many of the same things as the Reformers, but because he was his books were being copied by hand, uh, the Roman Catholic Church just would, you know, if you seized a few scribes, you basically shut the whole thing down. Uh, that That's not exactly what happened. I mean, they were able to go underground, but they weren't able to disseminate the message far and wide. With printing, I mean, Luther writes 30 books between 1517 and 1520. They basically sell upwards of 30,000 copies, those, 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 those 30 books. I mean, that's uh, each book is therefore what, uh, 30,000, uh, it's about 1,000 cop copies per each book, um, something like that. I mean, we don't have Luther, we don't have the Luther we know without the printing press. No, no, we, we don't. We not have the, Re the Reformation without the printing press. I mean, that monumental. Yeah, and then the, the, the just to, to take one country, the implantation of, of um, the gospel in Britain um, by the 1640s, the, you know, there is a significant growth of printers in London. By 1720, there's 70 print shops in London turning out books, uh, broadsheets, a, a host of things. And so uh, print, the printing press becomes a major um, vehicle for um, uh, democratizing democratizing. Uh, theology for spreading um, uh, literature far and wide, etc., uh, with good and bad. I mean, you, you, if you if if we can't think of the Reformation uh, without the printing press, we can't think of the Enlightenment, which in many ways undermines the Reformation um, in certain ways um, without the printing press too. So you've got both sides of the coin there. And then, as you know, radio. I mean, evangelicals were almost the first figures into radio realize its potentiality, right? 
Well, very much so, and that's a, lo a lot of work I've done in early 20th century uh, Christianity and radio, Michael, as, as you know. And, and, you know, the printing press, print and radio, very different mediums of communication. And even if we argued that, uh, that, that the medium is the message, go back to McLuhan, as you, as you mentioned, uh, what, what print does to the message of Christianity, I think is very different than what radio uh, did to the message of Christianity. So what, what I think we'd agree on is, is, is the uncritical embrace of a medium of communication, or in this case, a technology, they're both technologies, is what, uh, you know, is, is really interesting to me as we look at radio. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the church just, one, one author likens the, uh, not just the church's rush to embrace radio in, in say, the 1920s, but he likens it to the Oklahoma land rush or the California gold rush. I mean, everybody rushing to embrace this medium of communication in the 1920s. And the church was no exception. I mean, there were rare exceptions, some picking up on say Ephesians 2, 2, calling radio. That's where the prince of the power of the air <laughs> is. And I find that interesting. So, but that, 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 I know it is funny, but that group of people was such a minority, but there were those voices saying, look, this radio technology is of the devil when, you know, generally speaking, 90% of people uh, in the church were saying, no, this is a gift of God. This is for the proclamation of the gospel, and we would be foolish not to embrace it. So there wasn't much questioning of it. It was uh, in the 1920s in the United States, I mean, here it is, a medium of communication that is for really the evangelization of the nations, and we're going to embrace it for that reason. Um but, but so, so what I've done in, in just trying to look at early 20th century evangelicalism, really fundamentalism and how they uh, ran to embrace this medium, what I've done in, in my book, Broadcasting the Faith, is really try to do history through biography and look at radio preachers, but of different stripes, if you will, uh, different ilk. I mean, from liberals to conservatives and, and you might argue in between to just see what happened to the message of Christianity when it made, it made made its way to the airwaves. And it really is an on the one hand and on the other hand story. I mean, in, in some ways, radio was so instrumental in keeping Christianity alive in the public square, particularly at a very tumultuous time of uh, United States history. Uh, but, but something did happen in the translation. The medium did affect the message. And we can talk about how it did that, but um, it wasn't a neutral uh, technology as it as it uh, took on Christianity. Um, do you have much experience with radio? I mean, Michael. I mean, what what do you think of radio? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm part of that generation where the television was uh, just a normal feature of the home. Um, yep. You know, I'm I'm coming to age in the 60s so we always had a television i can't remember not having a television i mean one of the one of the most key events in my early years is remembering the broadcast in 1963 of the assassination of uh, jfk i was watching in england a episode of bonanza um and suddenly it was and i remember i can even remember what i was eating i was eating a cheese roll isn't wow. that amazing that is amazing. Uh, and but, but, suddenly this message came on that the president of the United States had been shot 
and had been pronounced dead. So radio, radio was never, you know, I mean, I had a radio. Uh, I used to use to listen to rock music, but I, I much preferred albums um, because then I could choose what I wanted. I could listen, I could re, you know, I could go back to a track and listen to it again and again and again. <clears throat> so radio really wasn't a, a prominent element in my in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm very much um, a book person. So even today, mm -hmm. you know, people will send me links to, to podcasts. <laughs> this is ironic. <laughs> We're doing a podcast, but there's one podcast to listen to. Yes, sir. One yeah. Called Bead. Yes. Yeah. But I, I don't often listen to a lot of podcasts and I much prefer to read a lecture than to listen to the lecture. Um, unless I'm there, li unless I'm there live, when I can actually, there, there is a dynamic that takes place when you're actually in the presence of the speaker that is not there Absolutely. by just listening uh, to a pre-recorded uh, talk. Well, and yet, yeah, and in radio, for that instant communication, if it's live radio, I think that was mm -hmm. one of the great draws in yeah. the 20s, 30s, yeah. and 40s, uh, before in you know, the 1950s when television started to supplant radio as, as the main uh, means of communication, even in, in the United States, but there was that immediacy, right? You could be giving a live radio address, uh, but again, not, not in person. So it is mediated through the technology, but I think that's one of the things that radio had, uh, of course, some television was live, uh, but you had speakers in our case, preachers that were doing live radio. And let me give you an idea, Mike, a lot of people don't know this radio. I, sometimes with my students at Southern, uh, I'll mention something about radio and then I'll look out on them and I'll realize how old I am and how young they are. And I say, radio's this thing. It was before podcasts. It was, uh, anybody ever heard of that? And most chuckle and some are still uh, familiar with radio, but I don't think we realize how ubiquitous radio was and how popular it was. Let me give you an idea. In my book, you know, Broadcasting the Faith, I, I take up four radio preachers. And you could have done more, but but this made, I think, the case for, for what I was arguing. But I took up Harry Emerson Fosdick. Most have heard of him. He was my more moderate or liberal uh, representation. But he was reaching millions mm. of listeners <clears throat> on a weekly program that started as an hour and then it cut back to a half hour. But his weekly radio broadcast called National Vespers was reaching people in the, in the millions. And then Amy Semple McPherson, you've heard of her, oh, yes. the founder of the yeah. Foursquare Gospel. She's amazing to me. I mean, this what a force of nature. I mean, Amy Semple, we should do a whole program on her. Oh, now, I, I'd I love part to do with that. Her, yeah. on, on a lot, we should do that. She's fascinating to me. But she people don't know this. She, in 19, 1924, she started her own radio station among, I mean, this is incredible, in Los Angeles at the Angeles Temple. She started what she called the Cathedral of the Air. Uh, so 1924, first radio station that was fully dedicated to Christian programming. People don't know that, but here's a, a woman in 1924, which, you know, think about that. That's rare. Mm. Uh, has KFSG, Call Foursquare Gospel. That's so, so even the call letters were recognizing this, this uh, four-part the theological system she came up with. But in 1924, the first solely dedicated Christian station, uh, millions of people listening to her on a weekly basis. And she was one of the first Christian 
uh, radio broadcasters and now as a, as a pastor, and you know this, Michael, and at the Angelus Temple there in, in Los Angeles, she was one of the first to broadcast her Sunday morning mm. worship service. So here she was, uh, a real trailblazer. People don't know this. I was fascinated, and, and our listeners might appreciate this. You never know what when inspiration is going to hit, but I was in a Ph.D. seminar uh, by Dr. Wills, friend of ours, you know, uh, Greg Wills, and he was leading us through a discussion of early 20th century evangelicalism, and he had assigned Joel Carpenter's good book, Revive Us Again, mm-hmm. you know, that, that book, that Oxford title. And it was literally chapter seven in that book, and I remember it to this day, uh, simply titled Radio. And he was trying to show how fundamentalists flocked to radio in the 20s and 30s to to kind of beat back as they, as they wanted to liberalism, moderate uh, theology. And it dawned on me then, there's a little section within that chapter where he, he talked about Walter Meyer and the Lutheran Hour. Have you ever heard of this program? I have heard of the Lutheran Hour. A lot of people haven't, but they don't realize for 17 seasons in the 1930s up until the end of 1940, uh, 49, the end of 49, he was reaching 12 million people a week wow. around wow. the world. Wow. Not, not just in America, but 12 million people were turning into, tuning into his one-hour show uh, as he, you know, had, he had forsaken Lutheran particulars. Here's a Missouri Synod Lutheran. But he knew that the medium of radio was was best built for the masses, and Lutheran particulars weren't going to fly on on the radio. So he he forsook those. Already seen kind of a dilution, um, a dilution of of his Lutheran particulars. But he wanted to reach you know the nations for Christ. So he wasn't going to be a uh, a devout Lutheran on the airwaves. He was going to be uh, a more general Christian, an Orthodox Christian. But, you know, another interesting tidbit here, Michael, as I think about it, in 1949, just the fan mail, if you just say listener mail that came to this program, over 500,000 letters came to the Lutheran Hour in 1949. Just in one one year? In one year, over 500,000 pieces of mail showing the popularity, uh, again, globally, of the, the Lutheran Hour. So radio, so ubiquitous in the culture and Christians um, embracing it. One other program I would, I would remind you of, I don't know if you've ever heard of Charles Fuller and yes. the old fashioned revival. Hour. Yes. Uh, incredible. What, what Charles Fuller was able to do. I mean, he fell in love with radio as, as a young man uh, started to embrace it in the early twenties. And then it was in the thirties that he just, he actually left his pastorate in Southern California to give full time energy to radio broadcasting and the old-fashioned revival hour just went gangbusters so he has about a a, you know a 30-year career in radio Uh, but at one point uh the annual budget 1944 for charles fuller charles fuller's old-fashioned revival hour was a 1.7 million dollar budget wow now in 1944 that's incredible and he employed 23 full-time assistants to handle the listener mail that would come in bags of mail would come in to the program every day. And he had 23 full-time employees to go through it. So, wow. Just, just incredible. Wow. And it's estimated that he was reaching 
20 million people a week wow. around the world. Wow. So it would be foolish or naive, that's probably the better word, naive to think that radio was not affecting how people heard the faith. Uh, that many people tuning in and, and devoutly, I mean, the, the listener mail tells us how, how um, intently people were listening to these radio programs. And what's fascinating is I just mentioned very different radio personalities, right? I mean, Walter Meyer was not Harry Emerson Fosdick. Mm -hmm. Frankly, they were, I mean, one, an Orthodox Missouri Synod uh, in Walter Meyer, and then a liberal Baptist. I mean, I don't know what, what Fosdick ended up being. I mean, he was a Baptist originally, but he spent so much time trying to forsake his Baptist and Presbyterian before that upbringing. Uh, but then Amy Semple McPherson, you know, started as a Pentecostal and kind of blazed her own trail of charismatic Christianity in America. And then, of course, Charles Fuller, I would say he was our revivalistic evangelical. Um, but this, this shows you something. Radio doesn't really prize or care so much about content. It cared more about personality. That was a big part of it. Uh, nostalgia or sentimentalism, mm -hmm. uh, a theological minimalism to where a Harry Emerson Fosdick can have millions of listeners each week, just as uh, a Walter Meyer and the Lutheran Hour uh, reaching 12 million people a week. So that tells you something about what radio does to the faith. It really flattens it and, and it makes it, uh, it loses its edges as it were. And this is becoming the diet of millions of Christians around the world and certainly uh, in America and might explain a little bit, goes a little ways in explaining some of the theological minimalism we see in evangelicalism today. And if that's the case with the radio, how much more the case, say, with television, where image becomes well, becomes a central yep. element. And uh, did you explore in your book or your studies the relationship between celebrityism or celebrities and radio? or celebrities and, um, well, you obviously didn't touch on television, but um, yeah. I mean, somebody like Amy Semple-McPherson definitely is a celebrity in her day. She, cult she cultivates a persona, um, very deliberately cultivates a persona. Um, in more recent days, Catherine Kuhlman, the uh, Pentecostal yes. faith healer, I mean, she took cues from how Amy would come onto a stage and yeah. uh, the, the dresses she wore and so on. Even as she would deny an association. Yeah. I mean, Catherine Coleman was so eager yeah. to, to be her own yeah. person, but it, it's undeniable how indebted she was to Amy Semple. Yeah. yeah. So, or Sister Amy, as we could Sister call Amy. Do you, do, you see, yes. uh, do you see a link between uh, the kind of American or just evangelical focus on a celebrity and radio. Do you think radio helped develop celebrityism? Is celebrityism a, a product of the radio world or? Michael, absolutely. And you know, as well as I do, of course, the cult of personality or celebrityism, I mean, whatever we'd want to call it, uh, um, the popularizing of the messenger. Uh, well, we know Paul, the apostle, dealt with that in Corinth. Mm -hmm. 
right? I mean, that, that was going on in Corinth. So why do you say you're of Paul, you're of Apollos, you're of Cephas? Uh, so that was even happening then. But we could go fast forward, you know, to George Whitfield. I mean, he had a cult following in some ways, Spurgeon did and others. But, but radio did much to exacerbate that, particularly in the United States. And you bring up Amy Semple McPherson. Many would say she could have had a career in theater. Uh, but she happened to, you know, to be in radio and, and, a, and a devout Christian, you know, a pastor. She would call herself a pastor uh, in many ways. Uh, but radio really, uh, if you wanted listener share, uh, people w- w- were attracted to the charismatic, to the dy- dynamic, and I don't mean charismatic in a theological mm-hmm. sense, but the dynamic, charismatic speakers, preachers, uh, personalities. So absolutely, less did people seem to care about what was being said, but who and how it was being said. And radio did much. There, there's a uniqueness to that medium. It prizes uh, the popular and the dynamic and the sensational, right? And Amy Semple, Sister Amy, was was certainly sensational. I mean, the mm-hmm. things she said and did, and and uh, um, and and that medium, the medium of radio really uh, helped prop up personalities and audience share would go to those dynamic personalities. I mean, Walter Meyer, he's fascinating. I, there was a, um, uh, an article I remember reading about him with pictures of him preaching in the studio. And he was, he was so dynamic and sweating and had his sleeves rolled up. He wasn't sitting down at a microphone. He was standing and using arm gestures and, and that translated you know, through the, through the radio and these personalities like Fuller, uh, and, and Meyer, I mean, Meyer's famous for having packed out soldier field, which is the football field in Chicago, Mm. uh, for what he would call these radio rallies. So he would go and he could, he could fill a stadium because people wanted to to hear their radio personality live, uh, at least in per, you know, not, he already, they heard him live, but in person, Charles Fuller would go to the long beach, um, auditorium and do weekly live shows that would pack out thousands of people would come mm. to watch him do his radio show live because he was a dynamic personality, very different than say an Amy Semple McPherson or a Walter Meyer, not nearly as, as, uh, uh, what's the word, um, aggressive or dynamic maybe as Walter Meyer as a preacher, but he would have his wife with him and they would have kind of banter back and forth. They would kind of be the, the hosts and welcome you into their quote unquote living room as they did their radio program. And, and uh, Mrs. Fuller would read fan mail and, and everybody in the Long Beach auditorium would feel like they were in the Fuller's home listening to them talk about uh, a simpler Christianity, right? A time, it was nostalgic. You know, they would go back and before modernism was doing so much to, uh, in their minds, uh, uh, pollute the faith. They could go to the Fuller's home. Kind of reminds you know. me of uh, Jack Van Empey and Rexella. Ah. Do you remember Rexella? And you had the same yeah, story. You know, Rexella would read fan mail, and uh, she just adored uh, Jack, and um, it was very evident. Uh, um, the um, Billy Sunday did he was he a bit before this? Did he use radio? He was earlier. Yeah, he, uh, he was earlier for me. I, I I didn't feature him as much, but in in Chicago there, and uh, he did somewhat embrace radio, but not nearly as much. It was a, he was a little before mm-hmm. that 
before radio became so um, ubiquitous among radio or among preachers. Uh, but he would have been he would have been good on radio, I think, had he, had he been. Now it's intriguing that um, so here you have very conservative Christians, and yet willing to embrace a very innovative technology. You know when we th so so you see when we use the word so when it, when an evangelical says I'm a conservative, what they mean usually by that is they're conservative in their theological beliefs, but they're willing to use they're willing to be radical in methodology because the radio i'm sure the i, I mean i i haven't studied it the way you have but i'm sure the radio to some degree probably contributed to significant social change in american culture the television definitely did right um yep. and uh actually undermined you know television undermined elements of traditional american culture I mean, so much part of our world now, but we forget that. And I, I, I'm sure radio had the same sort of impact. Yet here are evangelicals recognizing. Uh, I mean, the people you've talked about did they did they recognize some of the pitfalls of radio? Did they recognize that by embracing radio, they were radical in terms of maybe they were initiating social change? That did you see what I'm coming from? It. I do, I do, Michael, and I, I don't. I think there was such a short-term thinking and an uncritical embrace of radio. So, in my studies, I don't get the sense that it was even questioned. I think they knew this was an opportunity for the gospel to go out, and that's all we need to know. And and this this medium of communication can be leveraged for the gospel. And again, I think you're so right. Evangelicals were were notorious for. And this might be a strength and a weakness. I, I think the strength is we'll do whatever we think will be effective in propagating the truth uh, of God's word. I mean, it, Charles Spurgeon was famous for saying, look, I'll stand on my head if someone will come to Christ. Mm -hmm. I, I'm paraphrasing, but um, so, you know, we'll, we'll do what it takes. And I think there was, uh, as Eric Barnall, you know, the, the great radio historian, said everyone was treating it like the California gold rush. They were just saying, there's gold, let's go. And so there was that short-term um, thinking, not considering long-term effects. Uh, what would it do to the faith? That wasn't really a question. The question was, this will, this will launch it you know, out there, and there wasn't a critical evaluation of it. And I don't say that, I say that with sympathy, right? I say that with, yes. with empathy, yeah. in, you know, because I, yeah, as an evangelical, you're you're yeah. you're 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 appreciating that. But on the other hand, as a Christian thinker, Christian intellectual, you're recognizing that as we began the program, uh, this podcast, that media, uh, the media, is not is not neutral. Uh, yeah. The fact that I choose this media to communicate rather than that media, that's going to shape my communication. What I commun it's going to shape content to some degree. It is, and you, and you think of uh, a particular medium of communication or a technology like radio, and, and so we could ask of radio, what, what is it about radio, the nature of it, that could be helpful or hurtful, say, to Christianity? Take the hurtful side or the part that, that negatively impacts the faith. I mean, radio, by its very design, is built for mass audience. 
I mean, it's it's going to privilege or prize those who can can gather the the biggest audience. And so, by definition, the medium doesn't doesn't uh, accommodate well polemics, uh, sectarianism, specifics, or doctrinal substance, uh, because you cut off audience share if you do that. Uh, so what radio preachers had to make peace with is the forsaking of real theological substance. And I think we did that in this rush. Again, let's just think the best, the best motives to get the gospel out. We were willing to compromise theological substance. So it, it prizes the very medium itself. And we could ask these questions of any technological tool, but in radio, um, the theological minimalism of Christianity is what would remain uh, rather than real substance. And that, that ironically, Michael, actually contributes to the secularization of the church. And that's when, it, you know, history is so mm. full of unintended consequences, right? Mm -hmm. So here we, we have the, the, maybe the best motives running headlong into a technology, ironically, actually weakening the church in the long run because of the theology that will will remain once it's been kind of sifted through the radio waves. I mean, you see that today very clearly um, with things like Twitter, um, you know, Facebook, the way in which, you know, Christians devour and bite each other <clears throat> on those media. And if I was a if I was an unbeliever looking on, I mean, it'd be it's it's really horrifying. Uh, some of the stuff that is being, you know, done and said and uh, being revealed in these public media. Um, but the same would have been true. We tend, we, te we tend to forget, okay, radio would have had the similar sort of impact. Um, uh, television, I mean, who, uh, those of us who are living at the time, who can forget Jimmy Swaggart, you know, weeping publicly on television uh, about being caught for the second time, I think it was, with a prostitute. Um, and, or, or I, my, my, uh, my stepmother, sorry, my mother-in-law used to regularly watch the 700 club with, uh, J Jimmy, Jimmy and, uh, Tammy Faye Baker. And it was like a circus. I mean, it was just bizarre. And I'm thinking like, uh, how many people out there actually think this is, this is, this is substantial Orthodox Christianity. Uh, poor Tammy Faye. I mean. You know, what, what doesn't want to speak ill in one sense of the dead, but uh, I mean, she it, it was just a hoot at times, and then sad at other times. Well, it is, and you bring up Catherine Coleman earlier, and yeah, one thing just to show the transformation or the 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 religious or theological change that happens with particular medium of communication. She would do the. She made a career in in t television when it, you know. So she, but she had to sanitize, if if that's a fair word, so much of her charismatic faith, because it it didn't translate to television, right? So people were not getting an honest picture of charismatic Christianity, and of course she knew that, and her producers knew that. But they said, you know, we can't do what you would do on say a Sunday morning or some kind of uh, revival where we can't do that on television. That's going to freak people out or we'll scare me. You know, we can't, we can't. So what they get is, is less than what Catherine herself, Catherine Coleman would have said is my authentic faith. 
Now, later in her career, I find that fascinating. She actually did, you might recall, this really documentary of an event she pulled off in Las Vegas. And it really backfired on her because she, I think she finally said, I'm going to show all. I'm going to go all in on on charismatic Christianity for all the world to see. And, and it had that effect. I mean, it didn't translate to television very well at all. So it's, it's a reminder. We just have to have what happens to the faith when it goes to whether it's radio, whether it goes to television. And, and now in this digital age we live in, Michael, we're asking that question, of hopefully, of podcasts, of particularly this pandemic has made us think, well, can we trans, translate our sermons onto Facebook? I mean, virtual, so much of our life has been virtual now. What happens to preaching? I'm very interested in that when we do it uh, mediated through, um, you know, the, the camera and we're asking people to meet virtually and sit under preaching that's mediated, you know, through, through Facebook or whatever it is. So you've, you've got one study that you've done that was your growing out of your doctoral uh, studies on radio and uh, you indicated you did it through a kind of a lens of a biographical study. Have you thought about the possibility of doing something similar with television um, maybe doing a comparison between radio, television, and then the kind of podcast slash Twitter, Facebook kind of world in which we live today. So looking at maybe these three different mediums over the last hundred years. I love that thinking, Michael. I'm, I'm so interested in, in the interplay of the faith with various technology. Uh, I mean, early on, you mentioned Marshall McLuhan. Well, one of his uh, disciples, as it were, uh, Neil Postman ha has taught me so much. I appreciate him, and I, I don't know his faith. Or I do, you know, he's passed away, but um, what he said about television has really marked me. I mean, amusing ourselves to death. He would say uh, the idea of a ref uh, not reformed of an informed populace in a television age. He says to me, it's embarrassing to even talk about that. He said the, the medium itself, it, it prizes amusement and entertainment. He said, <laughs> I remember one uh, lecture I heard him give just through C-SPAN, uh, actually. He was talking about how, how serious can we take anyone, say a newscaster, a uh, broadcaster. He, he was mentioning Tom Brokaw or Dan Rather. He said, yep. how, how serious can we take an earthquake in Japan or a flood in India when after eight minutes, an eight minute segment, we're going to have a yogurt commercial <laughs> or a Calvin Klein jeans commercial. This was back in the eighties when I was watching. Uh, and so he was saying the very medium itself mitigates against serious thoughtfulness. And if that's true of, you know, secular news, like, you know, again, important things like earthquakes in Japan, uh, well, how, how true is that for the faith? I mean, the gospel, uh, these, these technologies aren't neutral. And what's happening to the faith? Are we hollowing it out? Or take that word he brought up, seriousness. How serious can people take God if when, when we're teaching them, it's wrapped in banner ads that talk about, I don't know, whatever it is we're selling? <laughs> so it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question. You know, what, what are people learning of Christ and, and the gospel in these various, uh, you know, mediums of communication? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, sometimes go on to a, um, 
a blog or a digital uh, website, and I'm reading along, and then suddenly there's an ad, yeah, which in content is at odds with the the content of what I'm reading, and actually I I might I find some of the ads offensive and disturbing, you know, um, the kind of sexualized way in which our culture uses advertising, and I'm thinking how they may not. I mean, does does the person producing that blog have any idea what the ads are going to be thrown up with it? I, I assume not, because the two are the two are at odds with each other. And so, I, I what I'll often do is I'll just uh, I'll just stop reading and just cut it off because I'm getting this ad every time I scroll, and I I don't need to look at some of these things. So that's a similar sort of thing to what you're talking about with Dan Rather and. Tom Brokaw, you know, uh, giving a serious report, and then ten minutes later, you, you, you've got somebody laughing about uh, Captain Crunch cereal. Exactly, and I think Postman's example was, you know, a yogurt ad. Like, what does yogurt yeah. have to do with an earthquake in Japan? And it yeah. and it's doing something to how yeah. we understand, in this case, news, and I want to say, in our case, the gospel, which yeah. it doesn't get any more serious than that. And take take an issue like. Uh, commoditization, you know, the idea of all this marketing and selling. Uh, say your example, Michael, of, of an ad that is obviously at odds with, say, maybe a, a Christian article, an idea, a doctrinal issue we're reading about or, or listening about. But what if you even had ads where, where the, uh, the company or whoever it is, whether it's Christianity Today or the websites I would work with at Salem Communications when I was there, what if you have a, at least a thoughtful ad team that says, we're going to try to place ads around this article, around this podcast, this Christian article, this Christian podcast that aren't at odds. We're going to make an effort to make it, you know, we'll, we'll have ads of churches or we'll have ads of, you know, Christian books, you know, we'll sit, we'll try to sell books. And now here's, here's, if we want to be really thoughtful about this, that even indirectly is what I, what I would say something like this. Could you become an unintentional peddler of God's word. You know what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I think he can. I think not, not every peddler of the word of God does it on purpose. This might be one of the unintended consequences. By our association, just with, with a market-driven a market uh, means of technology or means of communication, are we sending a message to our listeners or our readers that Christianity is a product, just like the things we're bombarding you with, whether it's banner ads or pop-up ads or a pause uh, to do an ad, and then you come back to the to the topic of it, say it's a podcast. We might be training people to think, well, the, the doctrine I'm thinking about or reading about or the, the gospel is likewise a product that's being peddled to me. Now, that would be Again, thinking the best, that's an unintended consequence mm -hmm. of some means of communication that I just say we, we the church needs to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's, you know, I, I given my historical bent, I think of newspapers, 19th century newspapers, mm -hmm. where they used to run sermons. So you have yeah. various columns. And then at the bottom of the column, there might be, you know, an ad for uh, Dr. Strong's liver liver pills. <laughs> or soap. You sell some or soap. soap. Or whatever. And 
you, you still got you you, you you know you we tend to think okay because of our we're now post television into digital mm-hmm. uh that's a long time ago in terms of cultural time you know newspapers and running sermons in newspapers yeah but you've still got the same thing you, somebody back in the 19th really? century thought it was quite a it was quite a fine to run somebody's sermon. Let, let's say it's on on hell, and you're reading the sermon, and then suddenly you're you're being being confronted with Doctor Doctor Strong's liver pills or whatever cough syrup or cough syrup. Cough syrup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they used to run run all these kind of bizarre concoctions. Yep. And snake oil. Yeah. So you've got a commodification going on there too, which is. So in other words, we've been doing this as a, for a long time culturally as evangelicals. We have, and what I'm concerned about in our digital age, though, is how we're doing it uh, in in a way that it's more it's more prevalent, it's more ubiquitous. This interplay of as we're talking about ads and and the faith, it's not even questioned, um, and and. No, I, I we'll see over time what what are going to be the consequences of this. You think about the internet. Maybe it's good as we as we come to the close of this particular episode, Michael. To even think about how does the internet con- compare and contrast, say, to television, but even radio. I'm, I'm interested in that. Um, take one area where I think it's exacerbated with the internet. Even with radio, the more sensational, so sensationalism uh, could get you audience share. My concern about the internet is the the barriers to entry are so much lower. It's so much cheaper to be on the internet that my concern is that sensationalism is really what's going to give you audience share. Um, the the more uh, flamboyant or sensational, that's what's because there's so much more competition. I mean, radio once you're on, there just wasn't the barriers to entry was so expensive. Very few in the 1920s and 30s could actually make a career in in radio. The internet, I mean, everybody's an author now, right? Everybody's got a blog. Yep. Everybody's got a podcast. Yep. Everybody yep. can get their content out. The question is, how are you going to carve out a niche for yourself? And what that does to the faith, we'll see. I mean, in the Christian space, how are you going to be heard in the noise that is out there? Because um, everybody's rushing into it. And I'm concerned about what's going to happen to the quality of the faith as a result of our digital age. And we'll see. Yeah. Yep. Well, Michael, I, I might close this way. I've, I'm so indebted uh, to Neil Postman. And, and I want to I bring this up. And you, maybe you can comment on this if, if you're so inclined. You don't have to. But as I was thinking of, of this episode and how I wanted to end with you, I, I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 6.12. And so let, let me let me read this to you. You know it, but uh, for our listeners, all things Paul says are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And so I have this kind of axiom I've come up with in my own thinking. I teach my students this a lot or try to convey this to them. I tell them technology was made for man not man for technology. Okay. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's so Good. important as a principle to work out of. Uh, yeah. That's why we opened with the question, friend or enemy? Well, I just want to say, look, tech, I use technology. 
I own it. It doesn't own me. And I think that's a Christian principle we need to embrace as we think about uh, our digital age. Uh, because we have to agree, we live in a technological society, and I get that language from Neil Postman. I mean, he says this uh, in his book, maybe you've read Technopoly. I love this book. Back in 1993, he wrote Technopoly, The Surrender of Culture to Technology. So even in 1993, he was seeing, look, culture has waved the white flag. <laughs> he said, you win, technology, you win. Uh, but Neil Postman suggested that the great argument of the 21st century, he says, is not between humanists and scientists, but between technology and everybody else. He, he was concerned about the uncritical acceptance of technology in American culture, and we're concerned about it in the church. Uh, Postman argued that technology is both friend and enemy, but he did in this book, Technopoly, he put the accent on enemy. He's really concerned about what, what an enemy technology can be, doesn't have to be, but can be. He went so far, Michael, as to say, quote, the uncontrolled growth of technology destroys the vital sources of our humanity. It creates a culture without a moral foundation. Now, notice he says uncritical embrace of it. And that's why we've said so many times on this program that it's the uncritical embrace of technology that gets the church in trouble. And here's a secular uh, you know, media critic or media ecologist saying that our humanity's at stake. I mean, that's, that's really raising the bar on, on mm -hmm. technology, saying our humanity, what makes us human is at stake. You know, at the, at the very popular level, this is the tragedy that the, the pop singer John Bellion warns of in his 2016 song, I, Robot. Uh, I'm sure that's on your playlist, Michael. You listen to John Bellion. And, yeah, but this <laughs> to be song, honest, I, I've never heard of the guy before now. <laughs> well, you got, you got to get him on your playlist. So John Bellion, okay. he wrote this song, though, I, Robot, and he's recognizing that in our digital age, our humanity's at stake. He, he yeah. likens us now to these robots walking around where he says our hearts, we used to have empathy and love, and now we just kind of have lights that flicker on and off. Like we, we, we can't even interact with one another. And I know this mm -hmm. is an issue dear to you as we've talked about friendship and the importance of relationships. And technology is, is stripping that away from us, taking it away from us. So the church, though, would you agree, Michael, has something to say to our digital age? And it is what I said earlier. Technology was made for man, not man for technology. So in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 6.12, we just can't let technology dominate us. It can't be master over us. We have one master, one Lord, and that is Christ. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of Church History, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.